The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. Hydrogen has the opportunity to decarbonize where electricity can't. We're offering better health outcomes. We're offering better income, all from the work that's going to happen with this project. Near term, there's a lot of different market events that are going to put pressure on both for buyers and for sellers. This is The Interchange, Recharged. All right, we're at day two here in San Diego for the Solar and Energy Storage Summit. It's uh, looking like good weather out. Hopefully it stays. I did not get to be at the poolside for our podcast today, but again, there's still tomorrow. And like I said, I'll still be fighting the good fight. We've got a very interesting agenda today. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the uh, ESG panel discussion regarding the value of solar projects beyond the megawatt hour. Uh, I'm also very interested in the commercial solar M&A and financing environment that's going to be coming on later today. And we'll actually have Michelle Davis on uh, to talk about that presentation as well and get a little bit more insights uh, from her. The atmosphere, again, is, is still very positive, just like it was yesterday from the announcement of the Biden administration's uh, actions. But it's really uh, today is focused on solar connected to storage, which is where things are, are going. And so very, very interested to see people's thoughts, views on where everything's going in the future. One of the hot topics people are talking about today in regards to the energy transition is hydrogen uh, and its potential replacement for natural gas in various areas. Uh, I'm going to be joined here shortly by Bridget Van Dorsten, hydrogen analyst at Wood McKenzie, to get her insights and thoughts on what she sees as the future of hydrogen, given the complexities that surround it. So very interested in this discussion. All right. Well, we're here with Bridget Van Dorsten, uh, hydrogen analyst at Wood McKenzie. Uh, Bridget, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I've asked everybody what uh, what it's like to be back in person. I, mean, I think it's, the answer's been pretty much the same. How's your How's your initial thoughts on how the conference is going? I think it's going quite well. Uh, what, yeah, one of my favorite things is people are 3D now, not 2D. I can see how tall people are. Um, <laughs> and then actually getting to, to network with people in, in person, it's actually way faster than emailing somebody, setting something up with their secretary. You know, here you're just getting their business card, and it's it's quick and easy. I feel like I'm getting a week's worth of work done in a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what have you found most interesting? Like, What's maybe one of your uh, key takeaways that you've heard from the seminar so far? That policy is extremely important, not only for solar, but, but for, for hydrogen as well. Um, and being a hydrogen research analyst, uh, I don't know as much on solar, but uh, it's, it's clear that policy and incentives, and e- even though solar is 10, 15 years down the road from where hydrogen could be, it's, it's still experiencing uh, the, the same uh, roadblocks that I would imagine uh, it would in that hydrogen scene today. 
so hydrogen uh, that that's been a topic uh, for you know the past year uh, that's been on everybody's minds, particularly in the financial community, on it. And it's it's really a a complicated um, complicated area. Uh, you know, you've got green, blue, gray, hydrogen, brown, um, and you kind of really gave a really good overview of hydrogen. So what, what would you like kind of as a takeaway as, as a little bit of an overview on hydrogen and what the future has for it? Sure. Yeah, I, I think I think like you said, it's 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 complex. It's very involved. And there are a lot of different facets, not only to the production of hydrogen with the different colors, but also the transportation portion of it, um, in addition to the the end use case. So it has the opportunity to play a role in so many different sectors um, that I think the the main focus that I think people should be focusing on is when we're talking about hydrogen production, uh, low carbon hydrogen production is important because we're trying to decarbonize. Hydrogen is an energy intensive process. So it would really be a waste if we used energy to produce hydrogen that was actually more energy efficient to just use in the first place, especially if the hydrogen that we would produce is uh, polluting anyway. Um, but but I guess the point is it's it's we need to prioritize. There are so many things that need to be de- decarbonized. For for example, electric vehicles, uh, they're great. We should just we should just be okay with them. Uh, fuel cell vehicles can they can just sit in the background. Hydrogen has the opportunity to decarbonize where electricity can't. And we should focus on those end use sectors. And we should focus on prioritizing that not only in policy, but in our investments. Um, it's 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 where the profit is. I mean, industry is huge, right? Refineries already have hydrogen that they need. Uh, ammonia production, we're always going to need food. We need to be able to decarbonize the ammonia sector for fertilizer to, to grow our food um, in a green way. And I think these, these uh, large sectors like refining, ammonia, methanol to produce plastics, methanol, um, and then also power, power generation just for your, for your home. I think those are the, the main focuses that, that we should absolutely be prioritizing. Yeah, I mean, so you know, you mentioned in uh, in your comments about hydrogen being in an 80, 80 million ton industry right now, and I think you said the project pipeline was about sixty five million tons uh, going forward, with both nice size and number. What do you think the drivers are uh, to that project pipeline? Yeah, a great question. I think so. It, it was really. Q1, Q2, 2021, where uh, we started seeing, like I said, not only an increase in the number of projects, but an increase in the size of the projects. And and keep in mind, these are just announced projects. Um, anybody can announce a project, right? You really need to see that come to fruition. Um, and, and the size of the projects that we're seeing announced today are 10, 20 gigawatt projects. And the largest green hydrogen production facility in the world right now is only 20 megawatts much smaller, you know, a thousand times smaller. Um, It's just pretty significant. Um, But but the main drivers for these project announcements, I I would say the easiest one that everybody can probably understand is energy security. Um, Moving away from natural gas because of the the invasion in Ukraine, I think has really sparked, uh, especially in Europe, uh, this this need for for energy security, this need to be self-sufficient and this need to produce something that can replace natural gas. uh, And that would be hydrogen. And you can you can produce it from renewables. 
and European countries have the potential for, for, for lots of renewables capacity. So either curtailing that renewable energy to produce hydrogen, um, to displace other uh, natural gas, typically natural gas driven processes, um, or, or just uh, having the renewable energy for, for your own energy security for, for powering you know, your TV at home. Um, it's, it, energy security has definitely been a, a driver. You know, what's interesting is, you know, hearing about the solar, a lot of people think it's, you know, uh, the solar farms, rooftops, but it has a lot more in terms of the generation of additional green products to help further the energy transition from a global standpoint. And you mentioned in your comments also that, that the U.S. is number three in terms of hydrogen globally. Do you think that there's any room for, for growth uh, continued in the U.S. To, to kind of maybe overtake into the number? Or do you think that we're probably stuck in number three, at least for the near term? Um, that's that's a good question, and and I'll say that I think I think we're stuck in number three, <laughs> and I think that we're stuck in number three, um, and I don't think that's a bad place to be, but I do think that the U.S. right now, in terms of policy regarding renewables in general, not just hydrogen, is is really just stagnant. Um, we're it seems like we're unclear of the, of the direction um, for for renewables as a country, let alone hydrogen, which is really only a small portion of that. Um, and I think with the uh, change that we'll end up seeing in terms of like the the Congress and and who has the House and who has the power to pass these these bills, it's really going to be a back and forth as to which which color of hydrogen is able to succeed. Is it green? Is it blue? And I think that uncertainty is going to delay projects. And while while we currently are number three, and while there were two very large project announcements this past year, I really think that those were kind of oddballs. And I don't expect to continue to see huge project announcements from the U.S. I, I think that we're in this odd limbo, um, and I think uh, it's it's going to be uncertain if we should invest in green, if we should invest in blue, because there's a lack of structure around policy and a lack of... Uh, a lack of visibility for, for what, what, what we're going to see in the long term. And the cost of these projects is, is not cheap, right? Uh, investing in these projects is, is a big risk. And you want to have some certainty with that risk. And there's just not certainty right now. Yeah, I mean, I look back to um, you know a number of years ago when ethanol was was kind of up and coming, and a lot of people lost a lot of money on ethanol investments. I think that's part of what we're seeing in the energy transition is people waiting a little bit longer. Uh, but, you know, if your view on, on financing, you mentioned that these projects are obviously very expensive. Do you see the financing there? Because uh, we, we hear that there's a lot of liquidity available to these companies, but it's maybe at a little bit later stage. Uh, kind of proven technology, get up and running, contracted. Uh, what do you see from a financing side? Yes, um, absolutely. From, from a financing perspective, the most important factor for these projects is, do you have somebody that wants to buy your hydrogen? Um, these these projects. I mean, the the technologies there. There are hydrogen production facilities um, today. There have been alkaline electrolyzers uh, for for a long time. Um, fuel cells have been around for over a hundred years. Uh, it, it's hydrogen isn't new. So uh, there are some newer technologies that that would require investment. But if you're looking for like a safe hydrogen projects, those do exist. The question is, does anybody want to buy your hydrogen? And how can you produce the hydrogen for a cheap enough price where they would be willing to sign a long-term contract? Hydrogen today is purchased 
through long-term contracts and, and that's that's for refining purposes. They either have the hydrogen production facility on site or they have a, like an air liquide or an air products producing hydrogen for the refinery and then they buy it. And it's a long-term, long-term contract, like 20-year contract, and that's how hydrogen is bought and sold. I think in the short term, hydrogen is going to follow that same kind of contractual market because it's safe. It's safe, right? There's no free market for hydrogen right now. And I think maybe there will be in, in 10 or 15 years once we start to see more production. But it, but in the short term, getting somebody to say, I will buy your hydrogen for this period of time for this price is really important. And those are the projects that I see as being the the most successful and, and almost a shoe in So I, I'm going to ask a stupid question. But I mean, I know that we've got, you know, Magellan has midstream ammonia pipelines uh, up and down the middle of the U.S. Can can hydrogen be transported via existing gas pipelines, uh, or is there anything that really needs to be done to that to be able to accommodate the transportation of hydrogen? That is not a dumb question. That is a really important question that most people want to know the answers to, especially people um, that own natural gas pipelines. Um, just so you know, there's also hydrogen pipelines that already exist in the Gulf Coast about you big they're really small um, but they exist between a bunch of refineries in the Gulf Coast because they share hydrogen their their demand for hydrogen is in flux so they they have this like shared pipeline network where they're all connected to this hydrogen pipeline and they can they can receive it when they need it there are a lot of pilot projects exploring if you can reuse existing infrastructure and this is going to be dependent on what country you're talking about and frankly the state of the pipeline um, there are pipelines in the U.S. right now that transport natural gas that explode. And <laughs> if you put hydrogen in it, uh, that only really makes things worse. And it's because hydrogen is such a small particle. It's basically uh, just an alpha particle plus like an electron. It's super tiny. And if you're talking about uh, embrittlement, which is basically hydrogen penetrating any kind of metallic material and uh, embrittling it, cause it, causing it to be brittle, um, it's dangerous. You can't, you can't just reuse any infrastructure. And it depends too. You need to be able to test the equipment. You can blend hydrogen with natural gas and transport it in a pipeline. And some people are testing that, you know, 1% blending. Um, that's being tested here in California, I believe by SoCal Gas in their own demonstration project um, where, where it's not going to anybody's, you know, homes yet. Um, but there's also test projects out in Europe, and, and the European natural gas infrastructure is a, is a bit newer. So their ability to blend higher percentages of hydrogen with that natural gas is, is heightened because it's just better infrastructure. Um, there has been talk of reusing natural gas pipelines in the sense that you put the hydrogen pipeline, which would be its own pipeline, situated inside of the natural gas pipeline, uh, mostly just, you know, th that way you, you get any kind of permitting uh, exercise that would need to be done, or most permitting, I suppose, or land acquisition. But, but again, it, it totally depends. It, it depends on the, the state of the infrastructure. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, that the pipeline within a pipeline. Yeah, it gets rid of some of the permitting the right away, all, all that type of. But I mean, that's just another thing that as as you look at the growth of hydrogen and, and its importance, it's these other factors that are coming in play that the, the infrastructure is very important because it's can we utilize existing infrastructure? Do we need to make any kind of adjustments or, or, or refurbs to it? 
or does it have to be a whole new hydrogen infrastructure? I think that that's what you're saying is there's a bunch of testing going on right now and, and how that ends up is kind of yet to be seen. Right. Exactly. And, and the, the current way that we transport hydrogen in the U.S., um, it, like I said, there are some pipelines in the Gulf Coast. But other than that, like here in California, there are uh, hydrogen refueling stations because there are about 10,000 fuel cell electric vehicles on the road. Um, but there are these refueling stations and the way that they get the hydrogen from the the point of production, which isn't near the refueling stations, to the refueling station is by trucking it which is really expensive and pretty inefficient, especially if you're trucking gaseous hydrogen. Just the the amount of hydrogen that you can store in a truck is so small. So they're actually uh, transforming that trucking to be not gaseous anymore and now doing liquid hydrogen storage, which is far more volumetrically efficient. Uh, they, they, they can refill less frequently, but at the same time, like you're, you're you're using diesel trucks to truck hydrogen that was made from natural gas like we need to come up with a better solution (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it also seems like just the way hydrogen particularly green hydrogen comes about is it kind of stays much more of a domestic resource it's not necessarily uh for international trade like gas has become with the expansion of lng you would think but that's not true um, there are there are a ton of projects um, and partnerships that have been announced where um, ports of you know this country are partnering with ports of other countries that are all the way across the world. Um, just this past December, there was a liquid hydrogen uh, vessel named Suizo Frontier that Kawasaki Industries had developed in Japan, and they shipped hydrogen. It was just a test. Uh, of, you know, can we ship liquid hydrogen? But they shipped hydrogen from Japan to Australia and back because Australia is, is, has identified themselves as we really want to export hydrogen and they want to export it to Japan. That's quite a distance to travel. And there have also been uh, um, relationships between like Brazil, like Brazil, Chile that have signed with countries, uh, signed agreements with countries and in uh, northwestern Europe for shipping of hydrogen or h- hydrogen derivatives. But but it's absolutely an international trade. That's interesting. So, I mean, it, I guess it's being driven then by uh, countries or whatever that may not have the ability to build the infrastructure for the production themselves, but are buying into the green initiatives and the energy transition. So they're trying to get that sourced from somewhere else. Um, I had just initially, just through the discussion, was thinking, okay, it turns into much more of a domestic. But uh, no, you're saying that there's a lot much more of an international trade and opportunities globally uh, for hydrogen. Ab- absolutely. And, and policy-wise, Repower EU, which was just uh, like put out a few weeks ago, an update, they have not only increased their goals for the amount of hydrogen they would like to produce domestically but just as much as they would like to produce domestically they would like to import internationally as well um so 10 million tons produced domestically but an additional 10 million tons of hydrogen imported and do you think long term i mean obviously you mentioned energy security early on that's a big topic around europe uh given the the russia ukraine situation uh do you see this as also being uh particularly for europe being able to help with their energy security, you know, obviously probably not in the near term, but maybe a long-term opportunity for them? Yeah, I, I think I think it presents a whole host of uh, thoughts, honestly. Uh, it, 
an opportunity to build relationships with other countries that previously weren't able to supply you with anything because they either didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have the uh, national investment to, to build out infrastructure that other countries had the upper hand in doing so. For example, uh, whether this is like ethically or morally correct, a lot of European countries are investing in uh, North African countries for uh, the export of uh, renewable electricity and, and hydrogen. And, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on that, but, but that, is, that is an option and, and, it, and, it, and it does uh, build new relationships where previously um, these countries really weren't able to offer much to Europe that was related to so closely to to people's hearts, energy, it's, it's vitally important. Um, and so building new relationships, uh, being able to build new industry, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of news that, that would come down the road uh, with anything along the, those lines. Well, Bridget, th- this has been really fascinating. Appreciate you taking the time. I mean, hydrogen is a very complicated uh, area, but it's, a, it's got a lot of potential and it's got a lot of interest uh, across various industries, whether it's energy providers, uh, bankers, you name it. A lot of questions about it, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else, what else comes of it. But thank you for the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just came out of the ESG panel discussion, really interesting and insightful. So I'm going to be sitting down here soon with Matt Cox, CEO of GreenLink Analytics. All right, well, on day two, we're here joined by Matt Cox, uh, CEO of GreenLink Analytics. Matt, welcome. Hey, thank you. So uh, you just came off of a, of a very interesting panel discussion on uh, measuring the ESG impact on solar projects. What, what were some of your key takeaways from that discussion? That it's really uh, hard to separate the ESG components anymore. I think a lot of the uh, focus for so long has been heavily focused on the environmental side, trying to figure out the carbon abatement, the CO2 impacts of uh, the various investments that might occur. Uh, but increasingly, there's more of a focus on the social piece, on the governance piece, um, and how all of those ultimately wrap back up into this kind of cross-cutting uh, ESG performance metrics. And so you're seeing more of the emphasis um, on those other segments turn into kind of like a rising tide lifting all boats, like all of the scores are getting better because you have those uh, various emphases on, on the social impacts and on the governance side. Uh, and they're not really, I mean, as like I was saying, they're not really separated. So you've got, you know, regulatory compliance requirements that are coming back on that might be more focused on the G side, uh, where you might be mitigating risk associated with the regulatory process. Uh, so having that emphasis that might be on something that's more social equity uh, emphasized, so reducing energy burden, which a lot of these solar projects can do because they're least cost resources being added to the grid. They're going to bring down rates. You're going to see lower energy burdens across uh, communities as a result of that. That's also turning into better environmental performance. Um, so it's it's increasing um, all of those when it's done well. And GreenLake, I mean, you guys are in a uh, an emerging space right now with with the data and analysis because a lot of this is really kind of coming to fruition now. I mean, it's it's evolving in ter- terms of how you really calculate this and, and what inputs you use. What uh, what are kind of your thoughts on the best measures to use going forward and how you really take a deep dive to make the best decision making, which is what you guys provide? Yeah, I think you need to have a really strong analytical backing as far as the way that the energy system itself is operating. 
So we do uh, hour by hour uh, analysis of what's happening on the grid, what's happened in the past on the grid, and then being able to look forward. Uh, so we'll build forecasts. We, we have some AI internally that we've developed that enables us to make these 20, 30 year forecasts of how the grid's going to operate in every hour. So it'll be you know, 150,000 data points on every single electricity generating unit in the country um, and the associated effects of that. So you're gonna see what was the carbon intensity, which generators were on, um, what were the public health implications of that, which then feeds into that kind of S component. And so you can start to tell the better story that as you're adding more renewables here, you're avoiding specific emissions, but you can be actually particular about it. Um, when those things have been done more on like an annual time step, or they don't have the locational uh, specificity attached to them, you see errors commonly that are in like the 30, 40% range uh, versus when you actually dial it in and look with that kind of high granularity. Similarly, on the, the governance side and some of the social side, like you're going to, we do the same kind of thing looking at job creation, GDP impacts, and uh, also income effects. And we look at those all the way down to like a county level. So like we can recreate the local economies looking at 550 different sectors in each county, build a forecast of how it was going to behave. And then say, if you did something different with your energy infrastructure, how do those cash flows change? And because of that, you're going to have some jobs added, some jobs lost. You're going to see uh, economic productivity shifts. And generally with the clean energy, particularly the solar plus storage work, you have a good clean energy, good clean job story to tell. It's, it leads to net job increases. Um, it leads to net income increases. And so we're, as we're communicating that uh, with local communities, you're seeing more engagement, interest, and excitement, enthusiasm for those projects coming along. So it doesn't become uh, a hindrance, which I think has been the concern. Like if we have to go do this community engagement, you know, now we're gonna have this nimbyism concern come along. Um, you can actually mitigate that by having done the numbers, Ryan, the math ahead of time, and you can come to the community and say, this is what we're offering. Like we're offering better health outcomes. We're offering better income. We're offering, you know, lower utility bills, um, all from the work that's going to happen with this project if we're able to move forward with it. And you see a lot of people get very enthusiastic and supportive when that happens. Yeah, I mean, and that's critical because uh, on this podcast, uh, a lot of what's come out of it is, uh, educating the consumer and the decision makers. And that's exactly what you provide is to tell the holistic story in terms of the benefits, not only is it job creation, environmental health, all that, uh, providing that in one package saying, look, this is the difference you can make across various different areas. And you taught, you heard um, Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, talk this morning about everything needs to be driven by the consumer, you know, the revolution there that will help drive forward the energy transition. And that's just exactly what you're, you're you're providing them with the data to be able to make the right decisions. As you look at the um, social and environmental impacts uh, of certain actions, what do you see making the most difference? And kind of what do you think needs to change, needs to be done you know, more of, or what should be done? I think it's different um, whether we're looking more like the corporate private sector or public sector. Um, in the corporate private side, I think the resilience piece is getting a little bit of its heyday. Like it's coming into its own right now. Uh, people are beginning to understand really just how impactful the value of lost load is going to be to their operations. So if they're able to add renewables and add storage in a way that's going to make it so that they have fewer un unexpected outages at their own operation, like that's hugely valuable. 
So they're going to make investments that are driven by that. Um, there are many tools, some of which you know, we help work with, that will provide a dollar value estimate for that so that companies can make those kinds of decisions. Um, in the government side, they've been doing the resilience work for the better part of the last decade. Uh, has been a big focus for them, and they're now moving much more into the social equity side of things. So you see environmental justice, climate justice, uh, the community engagement in particular process becomes a much more critical uh, component of their approach towards these projects. Uh, and I think that's all for the better. Like that's going to ultimately make it so that we have better democratic processes that are also then going to serve as the springboard for more of this work going forward. The research has demonstrated uh, that you've got, that the projects that went through, the efforts that went through that more intense, uh, what will feel like slower <laughs> process at the initial, at, at the outset of that, um, was three times more effective over the course of the decade in driving forward more clean energy projects um, and driving down emissions from energy consumption. So there is a, it will feel a bit slower. It's, you know, you're talking instead of having, yeah, four, six months um, is kind of like an initial push to get through something. This is going to be more 18, 24 months to get there. But if you're looking at the long run, both for the market and for particular assets that are going to be in the ground for 20, 25, 30, 35 years, uh, putting that extra work in on the front end pays strong dividends in the long run. As you do these assessments for your clients, uh, have you seen a I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have, but what, what have, what's your opinion on the change in attitude in terms of these assessments and taking action as a result of what you provide them over the last, you know, how's it changed over the last year or two? It's been incredible. Um, so the government side of things has gotten much more focused on the equity process component. That is a driver. You're seeing policies adopted just because they look good on that front. On the corporate side, I think the effect of ESG had really been an emphasis on kind of risk mitigation from the investor perspective. And when we were in a very strong bull market, uh, there was kind of less of an obvious value to that. It seemed like this is better management practices, so maybe we'll focus that, or you had investors who wanted to be associated with, with ESG. Um, as we've entered into this period that's much stronger market volatility, that better management has also led to better, stronger, more predictable market returns. And so you've also now had this, um, the value of ESG is just showing itself and is undeniable in that circumstance. So what, um, you know, obviously we're here in person, which is a nice change over the past couple of years. Uh, how have you enjoyed the, the conference so far and what has been something that you've, you found most interesting and, and a takeaway from? Yeah, the conference has been fantastic. It's great to see people in person again and not be in like, you know, Zoom land forever. It's been wonderful. The setting is is fantastic. We're on the bay in San Diego. So we had a dinner last night uh, that was out on the terrace here where we got to meet with a bunch of the other folks that are, you know, working in different areas here. So, you know, so, so much of ours is working on programming and planning and uh, getting to talk with project developers, getting to talk with people that are kind of part in the space, but also, you know, doing property management or other components that are a part of their business too. It's just kind of it's great, and these are the kinds of discussions that are not going to happen if we just have a one-hour breakout session. Exactly. And, I mean, you're, you're in Georgia. I'm in Texas. This is the time of year that gets pretty hot, so to come out here this weather, it's, uh, it's definitely a nice change. Absolutely. It's a nice change. Well, listen, uh, you know, Matt Cox, CEO of GreenLink Analytics, uh, really appreciate you joining us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much.
I just came out of probably what I found to be the most interesting discussion of the day, uh, which was around the M&A environment and transactions in the commercial solar market. On the panel was Michelle Davis, uh, U.S. Distributed Solar Analyst for Wood McKenzie, and I'm going to sit down with her here in a few minutes to get her thoughts uh, and provide a little bit more detail on what they're seeing from the M&A environment as it relates to commercial solar. Well, we're joined by Michelle Davis, uh, analyst here at Wood McKenzie uh, on the U.S. distributed solar side. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, we're on day two of the of the seminar. So, what's uh, what are your key takeaways? What are your thoughts about how it's going so far? It's going it's going great. Um, there's a lot of talk. I'm particularly excited to hear so much talk about distributed energy uh, and the role it can play. There's lots of talk about how pairing solar plus storage can add extra value to the grid. Um, lots of typical narratives around around those resources and the value that they can play, which is very exciting. And then, you know, just a, a lot of good conversation about uh, sort of the, the technical side uh, of some of some of these technologies, which is great. Yeah, and you just uh, you just got off of a open discussion with Michael Bloomquist from Open Energy, yeah. uh, talking about the recent trends in in transactions. What uh, what are the key takeaways from that discussion that you can share? Sure, uh, I was particularly excited about this one. I uh, we wrote some research together and put it out just today. We really wanted to bring some more transparency and um, some honestly just some high level benchmarks to trends in commercial solar transactions. How much do deals tend to sell for? When do they tend to get sold? How long does it take in order for financiers and, uh, and project sellers to actually transact on projects? So some of the key takeaways from today, um, the average price that commercial solar projects in the data set that we analyzed was uh, $2.21 a watt. Um, and of course, that's an average. There are a lot of deal-specific conditions that uh, dictate what a project actually ends up selling for. And this is, of course, commercial solar in particular. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of where, where transactions have landed in, in the study period that we, that we analyzed for this research. And then another key takeaway is that transactions tend to take about eight months from the time that a deal is available, ready to be financed or sold, to when a, um, a sale is closed and funds are distributed. Um, so, you know, nothing revelatory, but interesting, concrete, quantitative um, results of, of what's happening in the commercial solar industry. Another theme that Michael and I talked about is that in the near term, there's a lot of different market events that are going to put pressure on margins, both for buyers and for sellers. Um, capital in the solar industry has been typically quite cheap for the last several years. Lots of investors want to get in the space. Debt has also just been quite cheap because interest rates are low. Um, so there's, you know, there's been hasn't been a, a ton of uh, pressure in terms of interest rates uh, at the at the federal level. So we talked about how increasing interest rates is going to put pressure on on both buyers and sellers. Uh, buyers won't have a ton of room to be able to, if they want to be able to compete and actually win bids. Increasing interest rates makes it tough for them because their cost of capital is going to go up, but they still want to meet the same types of uh, hurdle rates. So that's going to be interesting to see how all of that shakes out. What we didn't talk about as much on stage is that I think there's going to be quite an interesting 
interesting situation in M&A. I think a lot of projects are going to move around. A lot of projects are going to get bought and sold depending on who has capital and at what what cost. So yeah, I think I think those are some of the key highlights. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Do you think it's going to create an environment where some of the just the bigger players, the bigger investors uh, and buyers are going to be the ones that dominate the market just because they have the lower cost of capital and are going to be able to make the returns work when maybe some of the smaller ones are going to be more susceptible to the higher rates? That's definitely a possibility. Um, I've been writing about and talking about consolidation in the commercial solar segment for a long time. If you look at some of the uh, statistics that we track in the U.S. distributed solar space, um, you you know you see consolidation over time. Um, the top installers or top asset owners have been commanding a larger and larger share of the market over the last several years. I think as interest rates rise, as equipment procurement becomes the most you know one of the most important things in project development, it's going to favor some of those larger companies that have access to cheap capital and can actually buy equipment in advance or secure really good deals for equipment with vendors. Um, so yes, I do think that's something that will manifest in the next year or two. And on the equipment side, how do you feel the Biden administration's announcement earlier this week is going to impact that? I think it's definitely a relief to the industry. When the news first came out about the tariff investigation, we heard wild pricing from developers about how much manufacturers were demanding for their modules. Since the first week or two after the investigation was announced, things have not been quite as crazy. But manufacturers were still pricing in tariff risk, right? You know, 20, 30 cents on top of where modules used to be. Now that the announcement has been made from the Biden administration, uh, you know, as further details come out and it becomes clear that that's actually, you know, going to mean no tariffs for the next couple of years, uh, I think those prices will come back to earth, which is, of course, extremely helpful. And it will also just mean that uh, shipments can actually start coming into the U.S. again, which will be great news for projects that are in development. One of the things I also found interesting from your discussion uh, just now was the timeline on these transactions. So you had mentioned eight months. Uh, but what you've seen actually accelerate is the timeline to get the LOI Sign. Yes, yeah. Uh, but everything else kind of has been a little bit longer, conditions proceeding to close, but at least that initial LOI has been accelerated. What are your thoughts around the, the drivers behind that? Yeah, I think, you know, what Michael and his team have done at Open Energy Group is, and, you know, this doesn't sound all that crazy or, or innovative, but they've just required that when you submit a project on their platform, all of the different conditions and characteristics of the project are standardized. And when you have that sort of standardized data, buyers and sellers can agree to terms and agree to financing faster. That's sort of the power of their standardized platform. So they've been able to connect buyers and sellers faster, even if project development continues to be slowed by things like equipment delays or interconnection delays. So I think that's really, you know, that really speaks to the power of um, a platform that standardizes information. So what uh, what else from, you know, it, like I said, we're on day two here. What are your key thoughts on interesting topics that you've heard uh, or other speakers uh, during the event? Yeah, I think um, uh, one 
maybe not a speaker, um, but I am very excited for tomorrow uh, for the whole agenda about storage because there is a lot of talk about solar plus storage, but there, there's oftentimes we kind of leave it at like, well, it depends on the project economics. <laughs> so tomorrow I'm very excited to hear from our analysts and other panelists about how storage economics can be made more efficient, how they can be driven down, because solar plus storage is going to be such an important piece of the energy transition. Um, so I'm really, you know, as I've been hearing conversation around solar plus storage throughout the day, I've been excited for that. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Uh, tomorrow will be a very, very fascinating day. And, and I know you introduced uh, Mary Powell. Uh, earlier today and that was a very interesting discussion and just the energy that she had and the positiveness and and she's just very passionate about what she does what were your thoughts on her speech I think you know I've been following Mary for a long time so a lot of the things she had to say around utility collaboration I you know I've heard those things from her before Uh, you know that's how she treats sort of everything in her career which is just awesome but I think one of the more novel things she said today that really kind of made me step back and think is you know, we think of we think of the energy industry and electric utilities and stuff as you know, it's all about cost or it's all about um, you know just kind of asking the customer to do all these things. But what Sunrun's trying to do with Mary's leadership is make a product, make you know energy services throughout the home, not just solar, but storage, charging, you know, electric service panel upgrades, things like that. Make them fun, make them exciting, make them a sexy product that people want so that you're not in this situation where, you know, we have all these extra things that we have to deploy and how are we going to convince customers to do that or convince customers to buy them. That'll happen if you make the product awesome. And she, one, of the, uh, one of the numbers that she put out, and I know it may be a dated number, but it was kind of shocking, was that 42% of, of the grid in the U.S. is actually economically efficient. With the rest, is it? And, and part of this is getting to the grid optimization and, and working to make it much more efficient uh, economically and just in general. Yeah, yeah. I, I also thought that was a fascinating statistic, even if, you know, even if it might be a little bit more updated today. But it's true that the way that the grid operates today is that it's overbuilt. That's supposed to be, you know, the sort of whole point of, of how it functions today. Um, and there's, you know, there's a better way to do things if we leverage distributed energy and utilities sort of embrace being able to deploy those resources and hopefully control them in a way that makes sense for them and makes sense for the customer. With this conference uh, finally being back in person, uh, it, it's been really nice because I think you lose something and it gets in isolation and the energy transition, particularly with solar and storage, like you mentioned, there's so many different aspects to it. And there's so many people that we've spoken to over the past two days that you get to take a step back and look at it holistically and how all the different pieces are starting to come together because you can't look at anything in a vacuum because everything's interconnected. And as everything continues to move forward, uh, we'll make progress. What are your, what are your thoughts just moving forward out of hearing kind of the positiveness from the seminar, you know, over the next year or two? It, it's exciting, for sure. Um, I think 
you know, what I love about it is just seeing all the different stakeholders that are involved in this space. You know, you really get to kind of visualize the fact that there's financiers, there's asset owners, there's developers, there's utilities, and you kind of, you know, you know that when you're at your, you know, when you're working remotely, but what you, when you actually get to see all of them, it's very exciting. Right, um, the panels bring it together. Yeah. And you hear yeah, everybody exactly. interacting and you're not just focused on the financing, which by the way, have you, have you seen any trends on the financing side? Um, commercial solar in particular moves sort of slow. <laughs> um, but as I was saying today on the presentation, there is just a lot of demand. There are, one of the things I talk about frequently with Michael is that there are so many investors and financiers that have capital and they want to deploy it in solar. And the challenge is finding a place to deploy it. So that continues to be a strong, um, a strong influence in this marketplace is that it's super competitive to buy deals. It's uh, it, you have to be able to offer a very competitive low cost of capital. So that continues to really drive that market. And hopefully with the Biden administration's announcement, we'll start to help accelerate some of that stuff because it sounds like there is a wall of capital that's available and just put it in the right projects. Yeah, especially, especially when you think more broadly about the utility scale industry, which has really been most negatively impacted by the tariff investigation. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on the show. Actually, welcome back to The Interchange. Thanks, you were a yes. guest uh, <laughs> a, long a time while ago. ago, long time ago. So welcome back, but appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, David. Well, that's a wrap on day two. Uh, really packed agenda that we've had today. Uh, very fascinating and interesting discussions from insightful panelists, uh, speakers, and I'm really thankful for everybody that has joined us today. A uh, lot to digest uh, and think through. Uh, really looking forward to tomorrow, uh, which is going to be uh, focused on energy storage alone. And we're going to have a number of guests from that day as well. I'm going to be heading out to Italian food tonight uh, after I maybe sit by the pool for a little bit. And again, I will be making an effort to have this broadcast poolside uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll see if I'm able to accomplish that or not. But uh, thanks for listening and look forward to another episode tomorrow.